Hi, welcome to episode 76 of Fear of a Black Planet. I don't know about you, but uh, this this week I seem to have caught the... Yeah, it's 76. I seem to have caught the seasonal blues. Um, or it could just be the fact that I had a nice week off last week and everything set into place and I defaulted to a healthy, natural, good, solid writer's routine and then having to go back to work even part-time just fucking drained me and screwed me up. <laughs> probably a bit of both, probably a number of things. <clears throat> but if anybody out there is feeling a sudden onslaught of uh, morbid blues and um, brooding, then uh, I don't think you're alone, and it always seems to happen at this time of year. <sighs> so uh, forgive me if I'm a bit low energy. Although I was feeling very low energy this morning and then, <laughs> as usually happens, because I'm trying not to look at Twitter and I'm pulling back from social media, but um, I got sent a few articles that just drove me nuts, you know, about this, like, trying to, you know, retell the story of the Iliad but from the women's perspective and shit like that. I mean, it's just fatuous. It's fatuous. I mean... As if, as if women or female archetypes didn't figure in that story, you know? How do you explain Athena? You can't. By that simplistic, reductive point of view. And I always thought of Athena as, like, the embodiment of uh, female power. Uh, in many ways, you know? Athena with the flashing eyes. Both a, a warrior and a, and a philosopher you know, uh, and she basically saves the day, you know, um, it's a heroic archetype, far more likable and, um, compelling even than Achilles, but I mean, these kinds of things is, I, I can even feel my, just like my insides being f sort of drained as I talk about it, you know, um, so, in some sense, it's kind of spurring me on from the low energy, but, you know, in a sense, the more I think about it, the more depressed it makes me, but it, for some reason it just is giving me that extra motivation to get through the day because that's why I do what I do, is to fight that kind of crap, to defend civilization from that kind of crap. You know, by all means, write new stories. By all means, write stories for young women that you feel haven't been written. For, by all means. By all means. I'm all for that. But don't rewrite the past. Don't rewrite history. Don't rewrite myth. For your own political gain. If it was purely creative, I'd have more. You know, like a, if it was psychologically informed and was coming from a from a, a, f a much more humane place, but it's not coming from that. It's coming in uh, fake compassion, fake egalitarianism. But it's really, a, it's, it's, it's a kind of political agenda to rewrite history in its own image. And I think it's sinister, and I think it's wrong, and it's going to be resisted no matter what. No debate, no discussion, 
anyone that tries it will be defeated and crushed. It's war, and uh, that's what I'm about, and that's what this podcast is about. And if you don't like it, stick it up your fucking jacksy. I really don't care. I had a gig yesterday, so that was good. I actually went far, I, I always say that these days, but it went for, because I'm always expecting the worst. But um, it went okay, actually, you know, I, I, in, not even in just getting through it, I actually felt like I, I broke through on some things. I'd been working for a long time on a couple of Robert Burns interpretations, uh, and that seemed to work out. I did My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose, but I did it in my version, and I put my own, you know, simple chords, but I, I, you know, I'd sat and listened to different interpretations and put together my own way of uh, accompanying the melody. Um, and, it, and it worked, because sometimes, I mean, it's, it's actually, you know, these sort of simple songs are... Because they're so concise, uh, to 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 play them live and to put the the right accompaniment is it's, it's not as easy as you might think. Okay, I'm not saying it's like Van Halen, you know, but it's um it's sort of like staying in the pocket is really the is the is the task. And that's a lot harder than you might think when you're singing a ballad. Um, because that, that, that repetitive groove is what you're going for. And yes, you might think there, there's not much, it's not busy, but it, but it's still a challenge. To, for me it is anyway, because I'm not a natural musician, I don't think. And uh, so it's, it's, it's difficult. So there that, that uh, I kind of pulled that one off to my own surprise, but I'd got to the stage where I was so relaxed. I was playing an outside gig locally here. It was a local festival, and um, actually, I mean, it was quite. You know, I'm playing to people who are sitting eating their lunch on a piazza. Um, so that can go horribly wrong, you know, because you're not necessarily they're not necessarily there for you, <laughs> although they know there's music. Um, so that went okay um, and I felt that I got into the songs and I felt that a lot of the stuff I've been reading and, and um, cultivating in my mind in the last couple of weeks kind of fed into it and that's kind of what I'm going for you know um, it sort of vindicates Everything, you know, all the poetry you've been reading, all the philosophy you've been reading. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a traditional scholar in that sense, you know. I'm not going to be one of these people that writes a PhD on this particular topic. But nevertheless, my curiosity and, and uh, all the work I'm doing in terms of reading and writing and feeds into the performance and that's the difference, you know. That's why I've got that Nietzsche quote on my website. If anyone goes to it, jamesblackfolk.com. You'll see a Nietzsche quote that kind of sums up that. And I really I really felt that I got somewhere 
on that. Uh, I also read a poem that I'd not um, that I'd not done for a long time. Uh, I wrote it a couple of years ago, way before these cultural wars kicked off, really. Um, when I was listening to a lot of Woody Guthrie and writing a lot in that vein and sort of learning my trade in that sense. Um, it's called This Machine Kills Nihilists. I might read it, actually. I was going to... I had a whole thing to read it, you know, in the same way that I finished off my set yesterday with it. But, forgive me, I'm not feeling the... <clears throat> the... Uh, Um, just give me a second, I'll see if I can find this bloody poem. Shit, what have I done with it? Uh, it's not the one. Oh, maybe this is it. No. Give me a second. Um, yeah, it's, because it is, oh no, here it is. It's based on, um, you know, this, the slogan that Woody Guthrie had on his guitar, and I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, in relation to some PC bullshit, saying this machine kills fascists. And I think that, for, for me, I mean, I do think, obviously, there's always going to be fascists and authoritarian cycles. But for me, the, 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 the real threat is the nihilism. And I mean the nihilism in all our heads, the nihilism in your head right now, which is sneering at the back of your mind. <laughs> What's, why should I listen to this guy? Who's he supposed to me? That sort of mentality. Um, yeah, I'll read the poem. This machine kills the smuckers, the shirkers and sharks. This machine kills the propagandist hacks, the cynics and critics and touchline halfbacks. This machine kills the hybrid-hearted connoisseurs with their lily-fresh hands and their minted manicures. This machine kills the smug and sarcastic, the brain-saturated iconoclastic, the well-read perfectionists, artisans and pundits, the payroll accountants making art into politics. This machine kills the synthetic sex peddlers, the snipers and snippeters and busybody meddlers who cut to the quick to slow down believers. This machine kills the Puritan compulsives, the OCD technicians with their spreadsheet cortexes, and their mounted expressions and high tonal voices mocking at faith backstabbing the virtuous. This machine kills those who spit on the sacred, who scoff at worship, at ritual, at morals, who hide behind science and grids and equations. This machine kills the self-satisfied acceptance of corporate obedience. The meme repetitions of useless temptations. The branding of souls with bland economics. This machine kills the Brahmanic elites and debonair princesses so sick of surprises. Who've seen it all and seen it enough between their BuzzFeed quizzes and six o'clock bulletins and their weekend discounted cinema excursions. This, this machine kills the petty and the pious who think that it's ironic to cheapen aesthetics, to paint over history and make beauty embarrassed, who make manifestos of bitter resentments and make moral grandstandings but are nothing but jealous. 
This machine kills the control freaks and fakes, and the army of sniggering consumerist slaves, who've annexed the truth, dug poetry's grave, calling it progress and claiming they're brave. This machine kills all those who whoremongers and GoPros, all those carefree money mongers and no-shows, who say human nature's a dogfight and no more. This machine kills the tight-lipped, fist-tight, small minds who've got it sussed out and wrapped up and bite-sized, whose kind words and backslides are well-timed. This machine kills the mind-fuckers, the bullies disguised as honest guys, the disillusioned collapsed hearts, whose small touch and small lies. This machine kills false prophets, the clever-clogged Hobbesian lazy thinkers, the rumple-stiltskin tinkers and spirit-drinkers, Pied Piper Steerforths and Gilmartin tricksters, who pluck at your heartstrings and call themselves gangsters. This machine kills the braggarts and swagarts, nice-guy bullshitters masking their dark arts, this machine kills the part-time relativists, half-hearted Nietzscheans and fair-weather Freudians, who think the subconscious is power's foundations, who bastardise logic and Darwinian values to force a disenchantment whenever they're threatened. This machine kills smart arses, self-satisfied posers and Machiavellian imposters, who think they've got others trapped in their fingers, because they push a few buttons to stop feeling awkward. This machine kills the Philistines and Friday Pharisees, who pick on the weak and glory to do nothing but tease. This machine will drive a steel spike through your intelligence. This machine will smart-bomb your plumb-brained, cocksure posture of boredom. This machine has seen you coming. This machine kills glibness and sarcasm, the waste-of-space academician who can't bring himself to love and blames it on reason. This machine kills nihilists. Start running. Quite amazed actually how much I still believe every single word of that, even though it's maybe about three or four years old now. But yeah, it's basically that I think that a far worse threat to to the world right now is that is that kind of sarky sar. It's it's nihilism that would would never admit that it's nihilism, and that's why it gets annoyed. And that's why if you're listening to this and you're getting annoyed with it, that's you. You're the enemy. You're the enemy. You're the enemy. You're the enemy. Start fucking running, cunt. Okay? We're coming to get you. Okay? We're relighting the fucking votive candles. Okay? It's coming back. Magic and beauty and truth are coming back. And all the people who hate that are the nihilists. Even though they would claim to be standing up for social justice, man, it's nihilism. Because it's, as Nietzsche would say, it's life-denying. You know, it doesn't accept the full truth of oneself. Um, and the use of science and the use of um, sort of basic psychological insights in order to, to harness those for power, for just mere political gain and propagandist power, I fucking scorn that. But anyway, I can't really explain the poem more. I mean, it's a pretty literal poem, so... Um, Yeah, um, I'm gonna start maybe reciting that every every gig as just a as just a, a way of clarifying what I'm about. Uh, what else do I want to talk about this week? Sorry, I'm really I'm I'm not on top form today for some reason. But I've been um, 
So I've recently I bought a book of Dylan Thomas's poems, and I realise that I much prefer that kind of poetry to what's considered to the sort of you know the kind of poetry I hate is this modern Faber and Faber fucking smug, safe, risk free, um, extremely technical, but um, sort of. Uh, Trivial. It's trivial poetry. Masquerading is deep. It's trivial because it's obsessed with, you know, like there were there was great poetry in people like Louis McNeese and and that sort of thing, and even Eliot, I suppose, where they they were writing about seemingly trivial things. You know, the kind of proof rock style, sort of the details of some someone's neurotic life or something like that, but in the inside story of someone to to articulate a, a truth. But the truths that a lot of this kind of modern lyric Faber in Faber style poetry are articulating are not they're not grand sweeping things about human nature. In fact, they're anti the very idea of that. And i and I just realise I, I far prefer that that um declamatory, bardic, um, magical tone of someone like Dylan Thomas. And I think that the the as as great and a genius as W. H. Auden was, his sort of sneering tone and snobbery has had a really pernicious effect on modern poetry. It's this idea that poetry, if it's not as precise as prose, even as it is not literal it's not expected to be as literal as prose and it's meant to be evocative and to conjure up a reaction rather than to be as uh, literal as prose, but it's still meant to be precise. If you, you know, it's still meant to be grammatically precise. It's still meant to make some kind of um, similar kind of Wittgensteinian reference to the world. And I just don't agree with that. I just don't agree with that. And and me not agreeing with that doesn't make me pro obscurantism. I'm not pro obscurantism for the sake of it. Uh, and I and I recognise that you know you can be too obscure. If, uh, to the point of of disregarding, well, to the point of being a charlatan, of course. But I think it's nonsense that that uh, poetry needs to uh, hold itself to the same standards as as prose in terms of in terms of meaning, you know, in terms of a clarity of reference. And I, I see that that's what's happened in lyric poetry. I, from from studying philosophy of language and this I, this sort of um, verificationist ideal of language, which is that yeah, it's a sort of reference, uh, Bertrand Russell view of reference that it, that uh, a word or a phrase or a sentence or a proposition has to correspond to something in the world and if it and if and if it doesn't then it's meaningless that's kind of the ba- that's a simplification but that's basically the intuition of it and obviously there's problems around it but whatever problems are they argued around it in philosophy of language they're basically trying to salvage that idea they're tr- or they're trying to account for the sense of that idea the sensical nature of that idea but actually think that that's a misunderstanding of language completely and that the the poets like Dimon and Thomas, who, on the face of it, seem like they're more obscure, uh, or or they're not precise. That their meaning, there there isn't a, a sort of correspondence 
test that you could, or verification that you could apply in the same sense that you could to someone like Auden. The ironic thing about it is that they're more ex the, the Dylan Thomas school is more accessible to more people because people really want that of their poets. They want something of reality sacrificed for bardic power. And it's 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 based basically on the idea that rather than that language it's certainly in poetry, what let's let's set aside prose. Like I don't even think that that's how language actually works in the real world in conversation or in prose. I actually think that the way I understand poetry is actually the real way to understand the origins of language and the origins of, of the power of language. And anyone that's read more than two pages of Shakespeare should fucking recognize that. But when in, in poetry should not be literal, but it should also not be, it's not a scientifically precise game. Meaning emerges from language, and language emerges from a groundswell of chaotic consciousness. It's primal. It's, in one sense, automatically fake. Because, of course, language can't capture the ineffable groundswell of chaotic consciousness. Of course, and I think most people find modern poetry frustrating because intuitively, whether they know it or not, they understand this. They understand that the 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 um that there is a preconceptual truth and a preconceptual awareness and understanding that is articulated ironically and paradoxically through risky uh aggressive use of language so that the, the 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 kind of normal language games that we associate with certain words and certain uses of phrases and certain grammar it's not to say that we should violate the words of grammar and then just call it poetry but what i'm saying is that um those rules and accepted norms are not the they should they're not the governing principles and I think that the sort of W.H. Auden school of poetry is the belief that that's the case, whereas the, the Dylan Thomas view is different. It's, it's that you're doing the impossible with poetry anyway, and the, and the reason why, actually, I think people probably, if you were to... People you know, who are not really into poetry, like the kind of reading public, they will probably know and have a sentimental preference for Dylan Thomas over W.H. Auden. Almost certainly, I am pretty willing to, to gamble on that. And the reason for that is that he speaks to a certain primal understanding that people under, know about poetry and that it's trying to say the unsayable, that it doesn't have any pretension to having a, a, a fixed thing. So I, I understand that the, the, the... And you find this it, from reading uh, Don Patterson as well, who's kind of the embodiment of this, even though he, he would claim he's not an odd knight, but he, he, he kind of does sum up that kind of modern Anglo poetry, the, um, 
it's sort of like they, they've got the story in their head. They've got this whole vision in their head. They've concocted this kind of um, beginning, middle and end in their head. And then they write the poem. Rather than someone like Thomas, whose the meaning emerges from this uh, exuberant, uh, intoxicated uh, outburst. And that it's so easy for people to think that that's just nonsense, that it's just superstitious, that it's pretentious, blah, 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 blah. But actually, that's the real origin of poetry, whether you like it or not. And you might sculpt it into something that works, that makes a, a kind of sense, but you're not, my point is, you're not imposing the same boundaries of, um, that you would in, in sort of fictional prose writing or, or non-fictional prose writing. It's not the same thing. It's not a cerebral process. And I think too often now it's, uh, the uh, modern poetry is too safe for that reason. Um, the, it's almost like, they want to see you're working. They want to see the equation. It, it, if it's if it's difficult and, and not easy to understand the meaning, it's that the meaning is accessible. It's just about figuring out the perspective and the voice and the tone and the blah blah blah. Whereas with someone like Dylan Thomas, it's um, I think it speaks to people on a far more primal level. As much as it seems more obscure and is certainly intolerably obscure to the sort of critically minded smarty pants types. The, I it has much more appeal to people because it appeals to their their primal sense of the inexplicable, the primal sense of mystery, their primal sense of the ineffable, and what he's doing is giving voice to something which is essentially formless and preconceptual, and he's get, and he's playfully articulating through the use of concepts and ideas something which is preconceptual and can never actually by its nature be reduced to an idea and I think that's real poetry and um, and I think that this demand that poetry be a kind of uh, that it's <clears throat> yeah it's almost like the, the, the it's like a top-down thing that the, the the story is there, the idea is there. It's fully formed in your head, and then you write the poem, and then you sort of construct it that way from the outside in kind of thing. And I just think that's bullshit, you know. <laughs> I just think, and and what annoys me is that that's the reason why it's considered superior is because it's a very technical process, and there's nothing wrong with technique. Dylan Thomas was a great technician. But it, 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 it's just safe. It's, it's, um, and the fact that it's considered superior is because it's critically minded. It doesn't make, uh, it, it doesn't make any wild claims for itself. It's, 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 it's not emotional. It's, it, it appeals to the emotionally repressive mindset. The, the fear of the subconscious, the fear of the violence in the human heart. Whereas someone, you know, like a poet should not be fearful of those things. A poet should be someone who's, if they've got any job at all, any role at all, it's to kind of go into that violence, into that surging groundswell. And uh, like, like, like Orpheus, you know, they're, they're armed with their craft. To, it, their, their craft is what keeps them sane. 
um, but that you can't stand and peer into hell. You've got to go into it and you've got to come out with the inside story and the inside scoop. And I just think a lot of this sort of tinkering type of poetry, I've, I've uh, tortured myself thinking what, you know, there's some of the, that school that I like, you know, that I get, you know, but I, it's not, it's just not me, you know, it's, and, and, and I now no longer feel shame about that. I now don't think of my kind of poetry as the poetry of the oiks, like the beat poet. It's much, that is much more, I think it's a sad state of affairs when even poets are suspicious of the subconscious, you know, and don't allow it to unleash. I'm not saying don't be, I'm, that's why I picked Dylan Thomas, because he's a craftsman. He wrote in stronger craft than anyone. But at the same time, he was he was he had this capacity to he, the the idea of meaning is a different idea of meaning. I think that's that's one thing it comes down to. Like it, there is no correspondence theory of meaning. There's no prose reference points. It's it, it's a different kind of meaning. The meaning emerges in a relationship between the the written word and the, and the and the reader or the listener and in some ways the the, the poet is just a, a vehicle for for the unsayable you know uh, and ver here's the thing I find that um, in a lot of the W.H. Auden school of poetry is that it as much as it's very beautiful I'm not always convinced that it could be said only in a poem form. You know, that sometimes you think, well, that's fair enough. You've made a point and you've got me from a place of A to B and you've evoked and provoked me into coming to the conclusion that you wanted me to see. But you could have very well done that in a critical essay. You could have very well done that in a piece, in a short story. You've just, you've just used poetry as a kind of, just because that's what you do rather the, to me the poetry should by its essence you can't say there's no way you can say that about a Dylan Thomas poem no way but you can say it even about a lot of what W.H. Auden writes I think that's my view it's too precise and to say that is not a defense of obscurantism for the sake of it it's just that by by its nature poetic truth is obscure and so trying to reduce it to particulars to make yourself feel more in control. It's control freakery. And that's and, and, it, and that's why there's no daring and there's 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 no fire or blood. Where's the fire and the blood and the burn in modern poetry? Nowhere. Because it's looked down upon, because it's sneered at by the hoity toity teachers' pets. Fucking teachers' pets everywhere. Anyway, that's 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 my little rant about that. Um, I probably will be reading Dylan Thomas this autumn. I plan to have a nice, cosy autumn reading Dylan Thomas. I was had I'd written down some notes about the EU. I'm not going to go into this on a deep level, but I, the more I think about it, the more it's not like I am so proud of voting Brexit. I can't describe it to you. Deeply proud, deeply proud, and intransigently Brexit. And it's just amazing to me how, even now, to say that it still feels like you're self-conscious that you're wrong, and that you, you know that 
the, the aspersions are being cast upon you. But the thing that I I can't understand is I can understand that people have con have confounded and confused and conflated whichever one of the words works. The European Union with a kind of internationalist solidarity, with a kind of openness and blah, but I just don't buy it. The way I see the EU is uh, a corporate body built from corporate power and trade deals to serve corporate power and trade deals. And I just don't think that that is in any way deniable if you know the actual facts of the history of the development of the fucking thing. It had nothing to do with rights. It had everything to do with trade, right? And I just don't think that you can create community out of trade deals, or they, they can be they can be entwined together. Trade deals are after the fact. The community needs to emerge organically. And I know no matter how much I say this kind of stuff, it's just not gonna it's just not gonna be convincing to anyone. But that's the way I look at it, and, and I just don't see what's wrong with that. I don't see what's so narrow-minded and small-minded about that. And to have an anxiety about uh, government which is so influenced by corporate interests. And if we, if you don't believe me, you just need to look at, look at the way that the the, the European Union basically turned it back on 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 a, a plebiscite in, in Spain, or the way that it's <clears throat> subverted democratic government in Italy many times over, or the way that it's held the Greek people to ransom. You know, and I, you know, and you could list all the good things it does, but I, that might all be true, and I might be ignorant of a lot of things. But I just here's all I'm asking: is that people don't s stop casting aspersions on it. Like it's not an unreasonable thing to have concerns about top-down corporate interests dictating the form and structure and institutions that control public life. And 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 I, I, I sort of isolated aspect of that to me is is a very particular uh, issue with the rights of citizenship. In the last couple of years, I really, if there's one thing I have become more conservative about is citizenship. And uh, in my view, citizenship is not, it, it, it's institutions and laws which support it, but it, but really what, it, what it's guaranteed by is tradition, a tradition of thinking about citizenship it's difficult to put that into words but basically I could sum up as like you could have all the human rights legislation that you want but if in, if there isn't a tradition of thinking about citizens in a certain way then it's useless <clears throat> and I think you can see that in these sort of emerging countries where I suppose you could take India as an example, where they've they, you know, really admirably adopted the best of modern constitutional ideas from the top down, but they have struggled on the ground to make them work because the diversity of views about what citizenship really is has been almost impossible to enforce, and so in some places in the cities you've got a very Western style of of government and it works. And they're very, you know, and they're very meticulous with uh, legal definitions. But then you go into the country, and it's basically a kind of um, 
local elders dishing out justice. You know, so you can have all the laws you want, but if there isn't a tradition of, of uh, a philosophical tradition of thinking about individuals and citizens and uh, human rights in a certain way, then <clears throat> then it's on on shaky ground, and I and I think that <clears throat> too much. I, I I feel that the the European Union being basically emergent from trade deals and then suddenly having this huge amount of judicial power through the ECJ on issues which I think should be left to the tradition of justice in a particular country, and I'm thinking particularly of Britain here. It's just I just think that on a philosophical level that, that compromises actually too much of what I think is 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 valuable about that tradition. And because it's traditional, I can't really put it in, in any stronger words than that. I can't really make it more precise than that. Um, but I just think that it comp it, it puts in it's it, it cuts us off from a from a tradition that's perfectly not only perfectly functional but actually superior to any other one in Europe. And I think that's I think I would imagine that at least subconsciously that's a big part of a lot of people's Brexit concerns is that well actually we've got this tradition of justice and this tradition of of, of citizenship which has been tested numerous times, which has evolved over time through reform acts and, and uh, you know the Great Revolution, all these things Declaration of our growth, I would include in that. You know, it's it's evolved over so many years and centuries of, and and been tested really, so much that it's become the, it's like a it's a it's a very resilient old oak tree, propping up the rest of the forest kind of thing. And um, I just feel that nice sounding virtuous laws from Brussels are more are in or put that in tradition in danger, and it's the tradition I value more. Also, I think that there's this confusion between unity and, and uh, homogeneity. And I actually think that this homogeneity that the EU seem to be looking for, where you get rid of borders and you get rid of uh, nationalism and patriotism and, and, and local community, for, for starters, it's just impossible. And you're just going to, you're just provoking people into reacting against it the more you try and do that. But it's actually the opposite of internationalism because internationalism should not be let's make everything into a bland, concrete Starbucks car park and then everybody will be together in unity and all you need is love. No, there's no love if everyone's the same. The whole point is, is that of internationalism is that we affirm our differences. And that's a paradox, that this simplistic virtue signalling, all these people waving the fucking EU flag outside Parliament, don't seem to get, you know? But anyway, I don't mind people disagreeing with me on that issue, by the way. I just, what I do mind is people casting aspersions on the reasons why I would think differently. And it just seems we're no further along on that issue than we were two years ago. You know, that there's an intransigence and quite a nasty intransigence. And I think that most of what counts for liberal thinking, left thinking, or the right thinking these days, 
is just a, 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 an egotistical love of the moral high ground. And that's, that's I, 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 I can honestly say that that's what I think it really comes down to. That you've got to have some horrible, nasty, fascist enemy like Trump or blah, 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 some bogeyman, just to make yourself feel better. And it's just as bad as the Republican right where, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s even, where they always had to invent a bogeyman in order to feel like America was great. You know, and... Um, I think that the, the left are behaving in just the same way. And I mean, I just I hate talking about this politics shit, but it just seems to be coming from that angle. It's like, you cannot possibly be anything other than a narrow-minded, ignorant monster if you feel anything different from me. And I actually, I, I'll be honest with you, it's... it's, it's It's been very damaging, that that mentality. Very damaging indeed. And the, the part of the problem is, is that the people who have that mentality are so convinced of their moral rectitude that they won't even question themselves. They won't even... Th they, they, anyone who's listening to it this far who has that kind of view will be scoffing and laughing and sneering or making a sarcastic comment or feel the need to make a comment... And what they'll try and do is traduce me and caricature me and blah, 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 blah. It's just so predictable and boring, uh, this kind of James O'Brien mentality, you know, that someone fucking, some angel came down and shat on you to anoint you as the fucking chosen one, you know. You don't have the automatic moral high ground. 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 Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thank